Welcome back to Mafia. And in this Audio Boom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who are actually there. In today's episode, Fleet Cooper examines who some historians consider to be the father of modern organized crime, Charles Lucky Luciano. Once in every generation comes along a dynamic criminal genius mind. Lucky Luciano is a quintessential American. Using his cunning and his intelligence, rises to a position of fantastic power and wealth. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. There's no question that Luciano invented the modern mafia. New York at the turn of the 20th century was a city in flux as immigrants from around the world flooded into town. Between 1890 and 1920, New York City's population grew by three million people. Journalist and historian Douglas Valentine. That's a million people every 10 years. Uh, it's at least uh, 5,000 people a month which is an incredible uh, amount of people pouring into a, a small little geographic area. So New York City was, um, was just bursting at the seams. In April 1906, nine-year-old Salvatore Lucania, soon to be known as Charles Luciano, arrived with his family from Sicily to settle in Manhattan's Lower East Side. It was um, uh, a place where uh, immigrants were, were um, trying to establish themselves as a, a, a political force. And um, at the same time, they weren't always succeeding. Um, and so the immigrants tended to be insular for, in many ways. Um, uh, the Italians would form Italian communities. There's little Italy still exists in New York. Former NYPD detective, Joe Coffey. Well, he was raised on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the early 20th century. And when you come out of that environment, you're pretty tough because you're living on the street, you're living hand to mouth, your parents are living hand to mouth, you're doing menial jobs, and it was like a rise from the ashes. But there were strong criminal forces at work in New York, and to Luciano, they offered a world of opportunity. I think he was thinking. I'm not going to live like my father, my mother, I'm going to be better than that. He was driven by, uh, he wanted to be successful, and the fastest way to be successful was the criminal enterprise. And he realized that at a very young age. Selwyn Rabb is a former New York Times crime reporter and author of Five Families. Lucky uh, Luciano was like so many other mobsters of the early 20th century in America, was an immigrant, came over as a young boy, uh, penniless, hard times, uh, turned to crime very early, like most of his compatriots. What he did was he was involved in narcotics, uh, burglaries, the usual kind of predatory Bush League uh, beginners, uh, beginners kind of crimes, learning, learning the ropes. Luciano started his own gang that included a niche protection racket, offering to safeguard Jewish schoolboys targeted by Irish gangs for a handsome fee. 
Here he made one of the most important connections of his life, a small Jewish immigrant named Meyer Lansky. Eric Desenhall, author of The Devil Himself. Famously, Luciano tried to shake him down and Meyer told him uh, in no uncertain terms, in very colorful language, where he could get off. You think that because I'm Jewish, I'm just going to fork over money. That's not going to happen today, buddy. Meyer Lansky's defiance immediately won Luciano's respect. It was the start of one of the most important friendships in the history of organized crime. Now, you got to remember something. When he was a kid, one of his best friends was Meyer Lansky. Former NYPD detective Joe Coffey. They hung around together, right? And Bugsy Siegel who was the guy who opened a Flamingo in Las Vegas. From day one, we're talking when they were in their early teens, they knew each other. They were thugs then. But they developed this relationship where they built it into an empire. There was a long way to go yet, but Luciano's natural talent for making money on the streets and his ruthless streak would soon get him noticed. Douglas Valentine. He had an aptitude for the rackets, for making uh, uh, money off of um, uh, existing, uh, sort, of, sort of like a, a parasite um, or a predator, uh, things that were in place. He found ways to make money off of them without actually having to do anything himself other than um, manipulate the situation through his um, ruthlessness and his cunning and his association with other people and his his vision of the way things should be. Luciano's first break came in his early 20s when he was recruited to be a hitman for Mafia Don Giuseppe Massaria, the head of the largest Italian gang in New York. Massaria ruled the city's streets in the early 1920s. Selwyn Rabb. His major accomplishment, he invented the title of boss. He was known as Joe the Boss Masseria. He had a lot of uh, young uh, thugs who came to him. People, Luciano, uh, Lucchese, a lot of people who gravitated because he was powerful and he was important and he had a big gang. Mostly what they were doing was they were preying on their own people. Like at that time, they were preying on Italians and Sicilians, the shopkeepers, the businessmen. Uh, he wasn't somebody who had vast business experience or thought of wide concepts of what organized crime could be. He got this reputation of being ruthless and really a, a gunman, a, an old-fashioned thug. Uh, although he was known as Joe the Boss, a lot of people disparagingly referred to him as Joe the Glutton. One of the things he would do, he'd have these massive meals. He'd sit down and have a 10-course meal, slobbering all over him while he talked and while he ate. And people would see uh, tomato sauce flying in the air, on his shirt, on his clothes. He was a real slob, in other words. Uh, but he thought he was so important and so uh, impregnable and so powerful that in the late 1920s, he decided that he wanted to exact fees from every Sicilian and Italian gangster in New York. And he went around and he, made, he, he decided that he was so big and so uh, so important that no one could defy him, and he had enough gunmen who could carry it out. So there were several other Italian or Sicilian gangs operating in New York City, and uh, he wanted something like 10 or $15 a head a month. This would be their dues to him, because he decided he was the boss of bosses, something that had never occurred before. Masseria was what was known as a mustache Pete, 
a traditional old-school boss who'd started his criminal career back home in Sicily and was increasingly out of step with the new world. Uh, Lucky proposed to him, why don't we do more with the Jewish gangs? And Masseria wanted no part about it. Now, there were many uh, in the Italian uh, gangs who were anti-Semitic, but it was also they distrusted these mustache peats, anybody who wasn't of their own ethnic composition. It was as simple as that. They wouldn't have trusted a, an, an American, let alone a Jew or an Irishman. So it was as simple as that. Uh, they didn't know how to deal with them. They didn't speak the same language. And people like Masseria hardly spoke English. They couldn't communicate. It was a different generation. And uh, Lucky understood this, and they didn't. Masseria was fiercely opposed to any non-Italian partnerships. But to Luciano, ethnicity didn't matter as long as there was money to be made. The innovation that Lucky Luciano brought was the difference between being a gangster and being a racketeer. A gangster is a tough guy who wants everybody to fear them and respect them. They like hurting people. A racketeer wants to make money. And that's what Lucky Luciano wanted. To that end, it didn't matter whether you were Italian, Jewish, or Irish. Luciano really didn't like the old-time Sicilian bosses, uh, the notion that you only stick with your own. A lot of the newer, younger Italians, they didn't really care about the cultural precedent for setting up a gang. Uh, it had nothing to do with Sicily. They wanted to make money, and guys like Meyer, who were Jewish, wanted to make money. Luciano now met another Jewish gangster, a fabulously wealthy businessman who'd go on to be known as The Brain. His name was Arnold Rothstein. Arnold Rothstein was that mythical character that you see in movies. Thomas Repetto was a former Chicago commander of detectives and author of American Mafia and Bringing Down the Mob. He truly was a Mr. Big, a man who ran all the rackets who had powerful connections in the upper world uh, and could control the gangsters in the lower world. He would have been a success in any enterprise that he got involved in. Historian David Petruja has written a book on Rothstein's life and crimes. In the Roaring Twenties, he is at the center of politics, of entertainment, even on Broadway. I would keep a chronology of what he was doing on a daily basis. And my head would explode if I faced the pressures, just one of the pressures of a $300,000 bet or being someone might being rubbed out or any of those things. And all those things are going on in his life simultaneously. He is the absolute genius of organized crime. Money motivates Arnold Rothstein above everything else. But so does the thrill of gambling, whether you're gonna win or lose. And also, it's a question of egotism with Arnold Rothstein. He's going to be smarter than everyone else around him. He is going to pull the fast one, either at the racetrack or at the gambling house, to get the extra odds, the edge, so that he will be the gambler who gambles without gambling. Arnold Rothstein loves money, he loves gambling, he loves the thrill of gambling, and he loves 
being just a little or a lot smarter than everyone else, of pulling something over on people. Now, the House can win if he is the House. There were things that, that Rothstein was doing that nobody else was doing, and Luciano saw the um, uh, possibilities. In 1920, prohibition was imposed across America. The gangs of Italian and Jewish American thugs were quick to sell diluted booze to the poor. But Rothstein thought if he could organize the thugs and sell alcohol on a national scale, he could make serious money. David Petruja. Arnold Rothstein sees an opportunity to bring only the best stuff in from Europe. His philosophy with gambling houses had been, you provide the best services, you provide a class operation, you sell to the rich. If you water the booze, you will make a profit right away, but you will eventually lose business. People will lose confidence. You will be just selling rot gut to the poorest elements of society. You bring the good stuff over from Scotland. You do not adulterate it. You sell it to the best people. You establish a reputation as the go-to guys for good stuff. Rothstein wants to make money from the rich, and also he wants to feel to be the equal of the rich. And maybe, in the back of his mind, the superior person to the rich. Rothstein paid off officials to get the booze into the country. To distribute it, he picked the cream of the underworld, a young team who would change American crime forever. Arnold Rothstein is the mentor of an entire wave of the gangsters of the future. The guys we know as the classic gangsters of all time, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, Lucky Luciano, Dutch Schultz, Frank Costello, you name them, Arnold Rothstein had something to do with them in the 1920s. Rothstein took these smart young heavies and showed them that if they wanted to be successful, crime had to run like a business. Rothstein was born here. He understood American business. His father was a businessman. He knew how to act like an entrepreneur. And his biggest gift to them was that when you organize, you got to forget about being thuggish gangs. You have to be brainy and smart and also as secret as possible. He let all these little mice run where they wanted to run and do his bidding. And that's where these guys got their start. It was a match made in heaven. Rothstein supplied the cash and never got his hands dirty while the Young Turks, as they were known, learned to transform small-time thuggery into big business. For those like Luciano, it was the chance of a lifetime. Rothstein tooted in there about how real money could be made, not just in low-level predatory street crime, that there were bigger things, you could fix things. So as a uh, student of Arnold Rothstein, uh, Luciano saw the um, practicality and the possibilities in the way that um, Rothstein did business. 
such as uh, establishing front companies for his bootlegging and uh, trafficking organizations. There were, there were things that, that Rothstein was doing that nobody else was doing, and Luciano saw the um, uh, possibility of this. There was once a movie made about Arnold Rothstein called King of the Jazz Age. And he was, in a sense, an uncrowned king of everything that moved, everything that had a price. He was one of those fellows who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. Everything could be bought, every person could be sold, particularly with the political system in New York at that time. As spectacular as the crooked system in Chicago, but this was an established system which extended its talons into Wall Street, into the police force, into everything that moved. And when he was able to do this, he also had money to invest in things which you would not associate with gangsterism. He invested in nightclubs, of course those were speakeasies, but he also invested in, in Broadway shows. He financed Broadway theaters, which still exist to this day. It is mind-boggling to think of everything he was involved in. Rothstein himself appeared civilized, a businessman with refined tastes, the only hood who could pass for a gentleman. David Petruja. The way he speaks, the way he dresses, uh, that it's very middle class, very businesslike, and also in his personal habits. He's not a drinker, he's not a smoker. He does have one weakness though. He loves milk and he loves cake. And that is as wild a living guy as he is. The sane center of an otherwise electrified existence, combining violence and greed and corruption. Rothstein became Luciano's mentor, refining his manners and teaching him how to appear the gentleman. He started buying more expensive suits. Uh, you know, he said, don't, don't dress like a gangster dressed like a gentleman. Rothstein told him that. If you want to be successful, dress like a successful man. Don't dress like a gangster. No white hats. Arnold Rothstein was not only the mentor to Lucky Luciano in the gangster business, but in the fashion business and turning a cheap Lower East Side hoodlum into a gangland fashion plate. He also gives these guys a sense of self-betterment. You should have better vocabulary. And that was a very important touchstone. For Luciano, his time with Rothstein was an awakening. He could see that this refined business-like approach was the future of organized crime. And it was already paying off. Selwyn Rabb. They saw a real gold mine in prohibition. And what it did was, it turned some of them, like Luciano, they had to become executives. Of course, now they had to run organizations that either imported a booze or manufactured it, and you had to distribute it. So in that sense, they had to run a real organization. It wasn't just go out and mug somebody on the street. You had to be smart now, because you were dealing, instead of thousands, you were dealing with millions. So it turned these people who were really inexperienced, old-fashioned outlaws into business criminal executives overnight. 
But Luciano wasn't just working with Rothstein. In June of 1923, while still moonlighting as a hitman and dealer for Masseria, he was caught in a police sting. David Petruja. Lucky Luciano is peddling drugs on 14th Street, and he gets nabbed with a little too much on him for his own good. Unlike Rothstein, Luciano couldn't pay off the law. Instead, he saved his own skin by betraying some mobsters wanted by the cops. He makes a deal with the police. He rats out some of his associates and walks away. At which point, Luciano has two problems. One, his upper-class clients don't want to be associated with a low-level 14th Street drug dealer, and his gangster associates don't want to be associated with a snitch, a rat. So he has to rehabilitate himself. Luciano escaped jail, but his reputation was in tatters. In desperation, he turned to Rothstein for help. And he says, Arnold, how can I do this? How can I get back in, in good graces? Arnold is, is in, in a sense, a master of public relations and uh, repairing reputations, what reputation a lucky Luciano may have. And he says, here's how you do it. There's going to be a big prize fight coming up in New York, the great Jack Dempsey and Luis Firpo. What you do is you spend a huge amount of money on tickets, ringside tickets, the best possible. And then you just give them away to the best possible people, the politically connected people, the, your rivals in, in gangsterism. Luciano sent tickets to rich businessmen, important congressmen, and to mobsters like Al Capone and Johnny Torrio. Then, to top it off, Luciano appeared at the September 1923 match, dressed to the nines. Suddenly, he was someone everyone wanted to know. All thanks to the cunning of his PR man, Arnold Rothstein. Selwyn Rapp. So he taught Luciano and some other future Hall of Famers in Organized Crimes Hall of Fame how to function, how to operate, how to be slick and not violent. Rothstein knew you could not succeed in American crime by being violent alone. He considered those people misfits, that sooner or later they would be, they would be undone, and that the way to succeed and die in your own bed, if you could, was by being organized and smart and slick. Luciano was back, and he was about to take another huge step in creating a business empire of his own. A Luciano saw and could predict that by the late 20s, prohibition was going to end in America. He'd cut his teeth as a drug pusher. And now, as historian and author David Petrucci explains, he told Rothstein about the unprecedented demand on the streets. I'm sure that when Rothstein saw the money which law, a fellow like Luciano could make, that he knew he could take this game to a much higher level. He is willing to move away from things into more lucrative things. He is not a person who is going to be satisfied with just having one racket. He wants all the rackets and he wants the next racket. Historian and author Bernard Whalen. Rothstein, again, being the brain, saw a market that he could 
capitalize on. Some mobsters might say, no drugs for me. I don't want us involved in drugs. Rothstein had no qualms about things like that. If they could line his pocket, he was interested. And that's how narcotics comes about for him. Just a simple matter of profit. When it comes to importing illegal goods, the brain's expertise was second to none. He soon turned their booze smuggling network into a drug trafficking operation. David Petruja. Prior to Arnold Rothstein, the drug trade was extremely disoriented. It was not organized at all. But when you have his amount of brains and cash and connections behind any enterprise, it's going to go up exponentially. So because of that, it really is accurate to speak of Arnold Rothstein as the father of the modern American drug trade. Together, Luciano and Rothstein supplied cities across the country, providing to both the rich and poor. He knew how to keep his hands clean, arranging it for it to be distributed by somebody else. He's put a layer between him and the drug, a wall almost, that makes it very hard for authorities to penetrate. And as the money rolled in, Luciano was also learning from Rothstein that with wealth came influence. Douglas Valentine. Now that wealth translates into power. It translates into political power. It means that you can buy political protection. It means that you can buy police protection because alcohol is something everybody wants to do. So they are willing to collude with gangsters. What they don't understand is that once you cooperate with gangsters, you've sold your soul, and the gangsters understood this. But in 1925, a new face arrived in town determined to get in on the action, and the streets of New York would soon erupt into violence. Selwyn Rabb. Salvatore Maranzano came from a Sicilian mafia stronghold in a city called Castellamarce del Golfo on the coast of Sicily near Palermo. And uh, he was a different breed. He was considered himself educated. He spoke some Greek. He spoke Latin. He was well-read. Uh, he was an admirer uh, of Caesar. In fact, uh, he decided Caesar's military operations could be used the way to, to organize mafia gangs. He wanted to seize control of Masseria's empire. And as tensions mounted between the two leaders, the killings began. Uh, there was the outbreak of a war between rival Italian gangs, uh, Sicilian uh, gangs, in the late 1920s and early 1930s. It was known as the Castellamarse Wars. Dozens of bodies fell. And Lucky decided, Luciano saw in his, in his infinite wisdom, that this was bad for business that was bringing a lot of attraction, a lot of law enforcement. You couldn't have bodies scattered all over Manhattan and Brooklyn and the Bronx without some kind of law enforcement involvement. After 18 months of fighting, Luciano decided enough was enough. Luciano approached Maranzano, the head of the Castle of Marseille faction, and made a deal with him that he would bump off Masseria. In return for sharing power with Maranzano, Luciano offered to kill his boss and take over Masseria's gang. Maranzano accepted. Lucky, knowing his appetite, 
invited him to a, a regal meal. Luciano's hitman waited outside for his signal. Lucky, uh, at one point after the main four or five courses, excused himself to go to the uh, restroom. And when he went out, suddenly Masseria's bodyguards disappeared. About three or four uh, gunmen walked in. And that was the end of Joe the Boss Masseria. The Castella Marese War was over. Maranzano then called hundreds of gang members to a meeting in the Bronx, where he organized the gangs of New York into five families to control the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. Luciano was made boss of one of the families. He leads one of them that later becomes, and now today is known as the Genovese family. It's nice to know that the mob or the mafia never calls themselves by these names. They're actually given to them by law enforcement, by the press. It makes it easy to identify themselves. If you ask, if you listen to uh, uh, electronic eavesdrop or you talk to uh, defectors, they'll tell you, I work for Joe or I work for Al. They never say I'm part of uh, uh, the Gambino or the Lucchese family. They know who they work for. And that's it. It's a bogata. It's a group. Each bravada would be led by a boss with an underboss lieutenants and soldiers, and all the families would be equal and free to make money. But then Maranzano declared himself capo di tutti capi, the boss of all bosses. If anyone disagreed, they'd be killed. Suddenly, Maranzano got a swelled head. Somebody who uh, hadn't looked upon himself as the boss of bosses now decided he was the boss of bosses. And he wanted to take over, and he started giving orders uh, how he was going to organize everybody. And you would be incumbent. You'd have to deal with him and anything you wanted to do. And despite his promises of equality, he soon began to whittle down rival families' rackets in favor of his own. Luciano was furious and determined to strike back. But Maranzano had anticipated this and contracted a hitman to get rid of him. Luciano had a friend in one, uh, one of the uh, close uh, people to uh, Maranzano. Uh, this was a man by the name of uh, Lucchese. And Lucchese got word to Luciano that Maranzano was going to bump him off because he saw him as a potential threat. Luciano knew it was kill or be killed. The problem was how to get to Maranzano. He was extremely well protected, always surrounded by bodyguards. He owned a bulletproof car. But Luciano knew tax agents and accountants were frequent visitors to Maranzano's offices. That could be his way in. He would send hitmen posing as internal revenue service inspectors. As an extra touch, they would be Jewish. Eric Desenhall. One of the stereotypes of the Jewish rackets is the Jewish guys handled the money and the Italian guys were the tough guys. Not true. Interestingly enough, when Luciano took over the Italian rackets, it was the Jewish muscle that played a big role. Luciano reached out to his childhood friend, Meyer Lansky, who set about organizing a small gang of Jewish assassins. The idea was that uh, if you use Jewish gunmen, we get very ethnic now, if you use Jewish gunmen, the Italian 
criminals wouldn't be so suspicious because they wouldn't look like Italian hitmen or Sicilian hitmen. On the afternoon of September 10th, 1931, Luciano's hitmen entered Maranzano's office in the towering New York Central Building on Park Avenue. No one suspected they were anything but IRS agents. One of the guys whose name was uh, Red Levine, who was known for being an Orthodox Jew who would not kill on the Sabbath. <laughs> and, but Maranzano was so bigoted that he felt if some Jewish bean counter uh, IRS guys came to his office, they couldn't do him any harm. Well, not only did they do him harm, they killed him. Two of the men went with Maranzano into his private room and closed the door behind them. They stabbed him multiple times and slashed his throat, but still he fought them off. In the end, they shot him four times and fled. With Maranzano dead, Luciano was the king of New York. At last, with Meyer Lansky as his right-hand man, he could realize his vision to organize crime. Historian and journalist, Doug Valentine. The relationship between Lucky Luciano and, and Meyer Lansky is the most important relationship in organized crime in the United States. Lansky was tough, honest, and brilliant with numbers, capable of performing complex calculations in his head. Crucial to his relationship with Luciano, Lansky wasn't hungry to be the boss. Lansky could never be a leader for one reason. He could never be a member because he wasn't Ita of Italian or Sicilian extract. He was a Jew and he knew his place. He was highly respected as somebody who had the ear of Luciano, who could talk to Luciano, and he was a great entrepreneur in criminal endeavors. But he was never a kingmaker or in a position of authority. Together, they were a formidable team. Through that partnership and the associations that um, they each brought to this partnership, um, modern organized crime was born. They, they saw that they could work together, Italians, Jews, um, Irishmen, that they could find um, people who would collude with them, politicians in particular, uh, union people. And they were constantly reaching out for new ways to expand this organization into um, internationally and, 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 and all sorts of different um, uh, activities, uh, funneling their money into, um, Luciano was, was one of the first people to see the, um, with, with Meyer Lansky, the, the beauty of uh, forming casinos to launder the money that they made in other rackets. So they're, they're really quite um, far, far thinking. And um, uh, although of course, their efforts were in crime, and, and it's hard to forgive them for that. But nevertheless, that's, he was a criminal genius. But Luciano and Lansky were very aware that their continued success would rely on creating stability between all the mob families. These are two uh, incredibly talented and uh, open-minded, in a sense, individuals who, having seen what Arnold Rothstein was able to um, uh, accomplish as an individual, realized that if they joined forces on the, uh, using the, an American corporation as a model, that they could eliminate the possibility of an individual 
like Rothstein, monopolizing profits. And they could share profits, um, uh, distribute them evenly, and therefore bring a certain stability to organized crime that had never existed before. Luciano was determined to prevent intermob wars from ever breaking out again. Lucky took over, and Lucky, instead of saying, everybody's going to pay tribute to me, I'm the new boss, that would have just meant more bullets flying in his direction. He organized the five family systems. That was a brilliant organizational arrangement worthy of any corporate system. Towards the end of 1931, Luciano summoned the top leaders of 20 crime groups across the country to a national conference in Chicago. What Luciano proposed was extraordinary, an entirely new business structure for organized crime. He laid out the rules. Here's how we're going to operate. And that framework and the rules and regulations, the Constitution, uh, the Ten Commandments still exist today. He built this impregnable fortress, this whole concept that had never existed before. Uh, essentially, he modified what had been uh, a system in Sicily for perhaps about 100 years, but he improved upon it. He created a whole new texture, a whole new way, a whole new concept of how criminals could operate in America, organized criminals. Luciano kept with Maranzano's five New York families, but to each family he added a consigliere, a skilled counselor and advisor, whose task was to ensure that problems within families were resolved without the need for violence. Lucky Luciano transplanted the idea of, and the whole concept and framework of an organization. Uh, the Jewish gangs, uh, the Irish gangs, they were mainly dependent on one person. You eliminated the leader and the gang disintegrated. Uh, there was no framework, there was no continuation. Luciano created the idea of what he called families or bogatas, groups, uh, throughout the country, and that they would have a framework. You'd have a boss, an underboss, a consigliere, and the keep and the workers, the crews with capos, an organizational scheme. And this was his genius, his brilliant genius, uh, for a criminal anyway. Luciano implanted this concept that the family would be paramount. The unit, the group, the organization was paramount. So even if a leader died or was killed or was indicted or convicted and sentenced to prison, the organization would continue. While Luciano rejected many of the old Sicilian ways of his predecessors, he retained the tradition of the made man, that individuals had to be made part of the family. It was never easy to get into the Sicilian-Italian mafia. You really had to show that you, you, you could carry out, that you were an earner, you knew how to make money, you could obey orders. Uh, it was harder to get in there than to a father and son union. But the point was, Yes, you worked for them. What was the quid pro quo? You had to get something. They gave you a life insurance policy. If you follow the rules, nothing could happen to you. You knew that. And other people in, in crime and other criminal elements, other criminal gangs knew that, in effect, they were the untouchables. If you did anything to harm a, member, a made man in the mafia, the wrath of the mafia would come down on you. So, in effect, you suddenly became, instead of being a low-life, two-bit criminal, here you are in an organization. 
that offered you all sorts of economic opportunities. You were in on big crimes, white collar crimes, not just holding up somebody or extortion. The opportunities were immense. But the idea was they even had a ceiling on membership. When Lucky Luciano created the modern mafia in 1931, he didn't want rivalries. And they established a membership, a ceiling on membership, the theory being there wouldn't be any wars. One group wouldn't go out, one um, family or bogata wouldn't go out and recruit dozens of other people for the mattresses, for showdowns. And the only way you could replace or add anybody into a crime family was through the death or elimination of somebody. So the Gambino crime family had a ceiling of, say, 150 members. You had to wait until they opened the books if you were qualified to get in. So this is what distinguished them from these other ethnic groups. They simply disintegrated if the leader left or was killed or was indicted. They had no organizational framework and no reason to be there. They couldn't protect you. Uh, the mob also took care of your own family. Presumably, if you got in trouble, indicted and went to prison, they'd actually take care of your family's uh, expenses. And they'd get you a lawyer. They would do all sorts of things. So in that sense, you worked for them, you did the blood oath, you carried out everything, including killing your best friend or your relatives. But at the same time, you were a member, presumably, of this elite society, this honored society, men of honor. And uh, it attracted a lot of recruits. They had never had a shortage of members. They were strong, they had a, an oath, uh, the very idea that it was hard to get in. You just couldn't join, just couldn't volunteer and join somebody's gang. You had to take the blood oath, you had to be vetted, and you had to be sponsored. So that concept is what made the mafia the uh, reigning power in organized crime in America. And Luciano introduced another striking innovation without precedent in the Sicilian mafia or any American gangs. Luciano, he created the commission. And the commission would be the board of directors. If any rules for the mafia throughout the country had to be changed, it would be up to the commission. And if there were any territorial disputes or disputes over, uh, over rackets, the commission would take care of it. Now, the concept there was to prevent wars. The commission would consist of a board of seven family directors, five in New York and one in Chicago and Buffalo. Each would have a single vote with all the decisions determined by the majority. This would ensure all the leaders of the most powerful families had an equal say. Ronald Goldstock is a former director of the New York State Task Force Against Organized Crime. Luciano was a, if, if not a, a genius, a visionary genius, uh, he was a realist. He, he saw there was a problem and he came up with a solution. Remember, it is almost precisely what the various countries around the world did when they were faced with the same problem post-World War II. They created the United Nations. They set up a Security Council. They made up rules which said we're going to resolve disputes before going to war. They allowed for sanctions to be taken under certain circumstances. One could actually take the UN Charter and for most of it substitute the word families for states and Cosa Nostra for um, 
um, the organization for the United Nations and Commission for Security Council, and the rules would be identical. As Joe Coffey explains, though Luciano had only recently risen to prominence, senior mobsters could see the genius in what he was proposing. He was, in his time, a guy who could demand respect across the United States, i.e., the meeting he called in 1931, everybody responded to. Some guys who never met him said, this is a good idea, and they came, they listened, and they formed the commission as we know it today. I mean, the guy was good. As proof of his good intentions, Luciano introduced one other startling change, Selwyn Rapp. Now, Lucky very simply could have been the boss of bosses at that time, but he didn't want, he knew that would only lead to trouble. In fact, one of his rules was that would never be boss of bosses. Luciano pledged that he would be just one amongst equals. He had done away with dictatorship and introduced a far more democratic form of leadership. There were no assassinations among the bosses for many years. After that, everybody had, everybody had their, their territory. Luciano had come up with a business structure that would last for decades. He was this incredible, dynamic genius who saw how the landscape and how the tapestry of the mafia had to be organized. Here is somebody who comes along in 1931 and envisions that if the mafia was gonna prevail and succeed, it had to be a mirror image of American capitalism. And what he did was he turned predatory street gangs, which uh, had their good days, their bad days, and had many internal and external wars with each other. He turned them into this one single octopus of an organization that was so different from anything else that ever existed. And it took the American law enforcement almost 60 years to get a handle on it. It was so terrific. And that was the greatest gift that uh, Charlie Lucky Luciano gave to his fellow criminals. It was a lifetime of prosperity and success. Luciano's mafia would be so effective that every conceivable way to make money was now up for grabs. In our next episode, we'll explore how Luciano's mob spread its tentacles into every part of American society, earning billions. They actually controlled a lot of industries in this country, not the least of which was the restaurant business, the gambling industry. Las Vegas is a great example of it. By 1930 standards, uh, uh, Lucky Luciano wasn't even a multimillionaire anymore. He was a billionaire. And we'll discover how Luciano was finally put behind bars. We have made a real start on cleaning the gangsters out of New York. Only to use his connections and the outbreak of World War II to escape. It wasn't easy to control women who had previously been independent. And of course, they resorted to threats of force. This has been an Audio Boom original. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.